21 through the end of that chapter, 10 verses. And then we'll pray and we'll do a little walking through the, the forest and see all the wonderful details of the beauty of God's wonderful gift of salvation. So Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Father, we come to you now and we ask that as we dive into this passage of Scripture together that you will give us understanding. Help me as one uh, speaking forth these truths that I will be clear, that I will speak with confidence and conviction, knowing that it is the word of God that is being presented. Take your word, O Lord, this precious gift that you've given to us, and instill it in us, plant it into our hearts and minds and into our souls, that it might deliver us if we are not already in right relationship with you, that would deliver us from the consequence of our sin and bring us into a relationship with you. And we who already know you through faith in Christ, that it would deliver us from perhaps misunderstandings or misconceptions or errors. It would deliver us into great joy knowing what you've done for us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So help us. We pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. Brief reminder, we're, we're studying the book of Romans together, this wonderful portion of God's word that is a letter written by an apostle to a particular church in Rome, and yet it is a, a letter written to every church throughout time, to all of God's people that have faith in Christ. And in this letter, Paul is going into great detail to discuss one matter, to explain one matter, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we believe this book. We believe it's true. It's an inerrant and infallible. So I'm not going into detail why I, I, I believe that, why we as a church believe that, but we trust that. So when we read these words about the gospel of Jesus Christ, we take it as fact, as truth. It is without error. It is infallible. It will not fail in any way. 
And, and the theme of this letter, Paul states very clearly in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. He, he wrote it this way, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, or how to have a right relationship with God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written from Old Testament, the righteous shall live by faith. That's the theme, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God to save sinners from the consequence of their sin. Then, in chapter 1, verses 18 through chapter 3 and verse 20, he explains why we need this gospel, why we need the righteousness of God. See, the gospel is revealing the righteousness of God or how to have a right relationship with God. And he says, let me tell you why you need it. It's because you are under condemnation. That's the one word that describes 118 through 320. It's not a word that, that people like very much. Condemnation? Condemned? What are you talking about? Well, we are. We're condemned. We enter into this world condemned because we are, as Paul explains in great detail in those, uh, in 118 through 320, because we're all sinners. And that, that doesn't matter whether you're an atheist, you don't believe in God, you, don't, you believe there's an afterlife, or, or you're, you know, you're a believer in a, a different God than the Christian God, or a God of your own imagination. It doesn't matter whether you've suppressed the truth that is in the scripture and replaced it with something else, or you're on the far other extreme, you're a very religious person, you're a churchgoer, you grew up, you never missed Sunday school, you got all the pins saying, I was there every week. You know, I, I went through all the, you know, Awana program, or I, I was confirmed when I was... It doesn't matter whether you are religious or you are not religious. You are a sinner condemned before God. That's chapter 1, 18 through 320. But boy, what a transition when we hit verse 21 of chapter 3. But now... Those words of transition are great, and we're stepping into, as I said last week, into the second major section of this epistle, and it can be wrapped up in one word as well, justification. Condemnation, why I need God's righteousness. Justification, how I get God's righteousness. That's what he's explaining in 321 through 521. Beautiful. And we're going to take our time walking through it. We just started it last week. I need God's righteousness. This is how I get it. Justification. This is how I get declared right in the eyes of God. This is how I get a right relationship with God. Justification. Now, I spent some time last week explaining what justification is and isn't. I identified four things uh, that justification does uh, does not mean that God sees me uh, just as if I had never sinned. It doesn't mean that. God isn't playing mind games with himself and he looks at us who are sinners and sees people who have never sinned. No, no, no. He sees us for what we are. He see, saw us for what we were before we became Christians, if we are. And he sees us for what we are after we came to know God through faith in Christ. He sees our sin. So justification, being declared righteous or having a right relationship with God, doesn't mean he doesn't see us as if we never sinned. That's just ridiculous. Everyone has sinned. 
Secondly, justification does not mean to be made righteous. It does mean to be declared righteous. When we put our faith in Christ, he doesn't make us righteous. You want the proof of that? Look at your life. You aren't. Right? In, in practice, you just aren't righteous all the time. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm better than I was. Well, of course. Of course. That doesn't mean you were made righteous. Now, God did declare you righteous. Justification is a legal term. It's a declaration by the judge of heaven. I, I declare you to be righteous in my eyes. Thirdly, justification is not the bestowal of a, of, of a quality, but the declaration of what has been imputed. Again, it, it's not him suddenly changing the quality of my life, but rather him saying, I'm going to take your sin and put it on Christ, and I'm going to take his righteousness and put it on you. That's imputation. It's God crediting to us what is not ours, the righteousness of Christ, and God imputing our sin, our guiltiness, to Christ. Wow. Wow. Brian was talking about that earlier. In fact, I was going to say, all the songs that we were singing and this time of remembrance and this sermon, what a, what a beautiful thing God put this all together. I mean, we did some planning in it, thinking about songs and all that, but it was like, I was sitting there thinking as we were saying, well, that's a sermon, well, that's a sermon, well, that's a sermon, well, that's a sermon, and then we get to the raiment, well, that's the sermon too. So I guess I don't really need to preach this sermon. So, But we have to have time for the meal to cook, so we'll just go ahead and do it anyway, okay? <laughs> but imputation, what a beautiful thing. God reckoning to us what wasn't ours, it was Christ, and he gave it to us. Righteousness. And then lastly, justification is not a, a change of state. It's a change of standing. And, and what I mean by that, when God justifies sinners, he's not declaring that bad people are good or that evil people are really wonderful people. No, he is pronouncing them legally righteous in his eyes, free from any liability of their law-breaking of which they all have done. They're no longer under the, the uh, penalty of breaking the law. Our, our standing is changed. Why? Because Jesus bore the penalty of our law breaking. Jesus bore it. We didn't have to. We are no longer enemies of God, but we are sons and daughters of God. We are no longer um, separated from Christ, but we are united with Christ. We are no longer viewed as sinners, but rather as saints. What a wonderful thought, though you might struggle with that. Don't struggle with what God sees you as being. He makes you a saint. He, he sets you apart from sin and sets you apart unto holiness and his glory and purposes. Don't say, well, no, no, I'm really not a saint. What? Maybe that just means you don't understand what a saint is. You're thinking of, you know, stained glass windows and statues and things you wear around your neck and things like that. No, 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 that's just totally misunderstood. The word saint simply means one set apart. One set apart from this to this. Set apart from sin to God. And when you put your faith in Christ, that's what happened. You were set apart from sin and set apart to God. Praise him. 
And then I explained in these ten verses there are four things that I identify. There's so many things that is such a, a, a full, uh, complex, deep, heavy uh, ten verses, but I identify four things in it that reveal the truth about justification, justification, how I get a right relationship with God. And the first one we covered last week, which was that justification is not by works of the law. And that's what he said in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, revealed, made known apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So justification is not by works of the law, doing good, being religious, being better than other, others. Paul states it very clearly. It is manifested or made known apart from that. It has nothing to do with that, is what he's saying. Here, here's the law, and here's justification. Here's the law, here's justification. And they don't meet. They don't go together. They're separate things. And the law can never give you a right relationship with God. God declares you righteous by faith in Christ. He justifies you by faith in Christ. And, and the Old Testament actually proved that to be the case as well. That's what he means by the law and the prophets bear witness to it. People have always been saved throughout time the exact same way. By grace through faith. By grace through faith. And I showed you a couple passages that demonstrated that. Um, the very first passage of Genesis 3 when sin entered the world and, and man tried to cover their sin by sewing fig leaves together, their nakedness before God. And God said, no. No, that'll never do. That's law works. That'll never do. I've got to provide you a covering. I've got to do it. And God sacrificed some animals and gave them garments to cover them. A blood sacrifice right there in Genesis chapter 3. Well, that brings us where we left off then. Number two, if you're throwing in your insert on the back side of your insert, is justification comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you haven't got it yet, I'm talking really fast because I've got so much to say today. But also, this is much. I, it, this is like teaching much more than it is preaching. I'm not going to really just at you. I, I just want to put it out there, and I want us to take it in and just rejoice in it if we know Christ. And if we don't know Christ, I want you to hear it, understand it, and be drawn to the only Savior who can save you from your sin. So... Justification comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 22 again. This righteousness that has been manifested, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So at this point, Paul moves to the first explicit statement on Christ's involvement in how we get a right relationship with God. It kind of was introduced in the first few verses of the letter, but this is the first explicit statement of his involvement in the righteousness of God becoming acquired by sinners. Again, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, faith is the means. It is the means whereby a righteous standing with God is possible. 
several more times in these verses, faith is mentioned. And it reveals over and over again the importance of faith. Last week, I I showed you how justification is clearly the theme of these ten verses. Nine times, either uh, justification or just or justifier or righteous or righteousness, all coming from the same root Greek word, is found nine times in ten verses. Well, it's almost that way with faith. Here in 22, faith in, uh, through faith in, in uh, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 25, where it says, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That's right. It was to show, verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. But what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, restating what he's already said. Verse 30, since God is one who will justify the circumcised Jews by faith and the uncircumcised Gentiles through faith. And then verse 31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Wow, faith. It's really, really important when it comes to justification. So when it comes to the the matter of how to be declared right in God's eyes, how to have a right relationship with God, faith and works are complete opposites, and they cannot be joined together. It's kind of like oil and water. Try as you can, uh, as you might, you cannot get them to mix together. You can pour them together, but they will separate. They do not go together, just as faith and good works cannot be joined together in the matter of justification, how to get a right relationship with God. And to attempt to make them equal parts of how to be right with God is to destroy, absolutely destroy the message of the gospel. Now, this is critical because this is where a lot of religions go. Well, of course, you have to believe, but... You also have to have good works, or you have to obey the law. Uh, How many times did Pastor Tom have that conversation with his mom, who is in Catholic background? Yeah, of course, we believe the same thing, faith, uh, but you have to have works. And and Mom, we're, we're not talking about the same thing. Oh, yeah, we are, faith. And works, faith and works, always trying to bring them together. Not just Catholicism, so many other churches. This is where people tend to go. They either go to, well, it's all by grace through faith, so it doesn't matter how I live, libertinism, or it goes to uh, faith plus the law, which is legalism. And right in the middle is the truth. Justification is apart from it. It's faith and faith alone. Now, it's equally important to recognize that Jesus Christ is the object, right? The object of faith. The the faith that results in a right relationship with God is not a general belief that there's a God. (laughs) That doesn't save anyone. It is faith which is placed in Christ Jesus, a trust, a trust in the one who came to earth to die for sinners, 
and through his death, burial, and resurrection brought about justification, what we're talking about, and redemption, which we're going to get to in a minute, and propitiation, which is also in our text, and uh, all the other big theological words about salvation. You know, uh, he, he brought it about. And, and the word in that phrase, through, is through faith in Jesus Christ. It's very important. It points to the fact that faith itself is not a meritorious thing, right? It's not a meritorious thing, earning salvation. Rather, it is the means, the method, the, the channel uh, whereby God's righteousness is received. Let me see if I can explain it kind of visually. It is it's like a tube, Faith is like a tube, and here's God and his righteousness, and here's us and sinners, and we believe in Christ, and through our belief, which is the tube, comes the righteousness of Christ to us. It's not our faith that saves us, it's the righteousness of Christ, the blood of Christ, the grace of God that comes through that tube of faith that saves us. It's the means, the method, the channel whereby we can be saved. Listen to 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5, where this is stated. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the, the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And you might think, well, see, it's, it's our faith. It's our faith. That's all it is. Whoa, whoa, wait. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes, faith, that Jesus is the Son of God? So what is it that brings about overcoming the world? It's Jesus Christ. And it's faith that allows you to receive his overcoming of the world. Faith is not meritorious. And that's where a lot of people want to go to. <laughs> Aren't I brilliant? I, I believed. I believe there's a God, and I believe the Bible, and I believe what I was you know, taught, and I believe that Jesus is the only Savior. It's, like it's, it's, it's what I believe. It's I believe, I believe, I believe. No, it's who you believe. The content is absolutely critical. Let me, let me even explain this by way of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, faith was placed in the specific promises that God made to an individual or to a people group, right? Uh, Noah, right? You remember him from Genesis, the whole flood thing? Noah believed God when he said that he would destroy life through a flood, but that he and his family would be saved through an ark. So what actually saved Noah? Was it his faith or was it the ark? It was the ark. He believed the ark would save him, but it was the ark that saved him. By the way, if you didn't know this, according to Peter, the ark is a picture of Christ. Christ is our ark that saves us from the wrath of God that will be poured out on all ungodly people, unbelievers. Abraham believed the promise God made him with respect to to through him and his descendants, blessing would come not only to the Jewish people, but to the whole world. So who, who brings the blessing? God does. Abraham's faith brought that promise to him. 
It's the channel whereby he received it, and that blessing was poured out on others. During the time of Moses, the people had to believe the promise, the promises made regarding the land of promise. <laughs> Their faith kind of failed them initially, didn't it? Spent 40 years in the wilderness because they didn't exercise faith. But it wasn't their faith that would give them the land. It was God who would give them the land. It was their faith in God's ability to give them the land. To David, God promised that one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever. Hmm. Was it David that would take care of all that? No, David was going to die. It was God who would work that out, right? And by the way, he does. And David's descendant who would reign forever is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not his faith. It's who his faith was in. So if you didn't pick up on this, make sure you understand that none of them had the specific promise of God's son coming into the world, that his name would be Jesus, that he would be the Christ, that he would become a man, live a perfect life, die a substitutionary death, and resurrect from the dead. But what they did receive, they believed. And because they believed God, the promises were fulfilled in them. But all of those promises were actually fulfilled in Christ. Well, this emphasizes then that the object of faith is more important than faith itself. Faith must be exercised, but it must be placed in the right object. Otherwise, it could do nothing for those who believe. Let me give you a, a good example. Um, we get cold weather up here in the ponds and lakes. They get icy, and people like to go skating on them or ride snow machines across them, or in some places even drive across that. And, you know, they have faith that the ice will hold them up. And it gets a little into spring, and you always read about snow machines going on, people disappearing. You can see pictures of trucks that went through the ice. But they believed. They believed the ice would hold them. It wasn't their belief that was important. It was the ice that was important. Now, they wouldn't drive across it or, or skate on it if they didn't believe, but it's actually the ice that would hold them, right? Here's a stool. Now, I had faith that when I sat on the stool, it would hold me up. So what holds me up? My faith or the stool? The stool. Now, if that stool was missing a leg, that would have been pretty bad, especially with my body. If it had a crack and it, you know, it, it falls over, you know, it's like the stool couldn't hold me up. It, 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 it's the stool that holds me up, not my faith. I believe that when I sat on it, it would hold me up. I've seen evidence that it held other people up. So I, I felt pretty good about that. We exercise faith every day when we get up and we go to a light switch. And we flip it on. Now, is it our faith that turns on the lights? No, it's the electricity that's coming into the house that runs to a switch, that runs to a light. That's what turns the light on. But if I didn't believe that that would turn a light on, I'd never go up to the switch and flip it up. Or I could say, well, I'm going I'm to 
do this. I'm going to make a little stand, and I'm going to put a two-by-four up, and I'll attach a, a switch to it. But there's no wire going to it. And I'm going to go over, and I'm flip the switch on, and it's like, I don't get it. All the other switches, they, they turn on lights. Why doesn't this one? Because what's required is the electricity, not my faith. Is it getting across? Our faith isn't meritorious. It's what we believe in or who we believe in that is most important. Faith has to be placed in the specific content of what God has revealed. And if we believe, then the blessing, the promises come to being in our lives. It's, it's never been just enough to believe in God. It's never been enough. All of the specific promises, both in the Old and the New Testament, would eventually find their fulfillment in the Messiah, whom we know to be Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself made that clear And after he was resurrected. And he's talking with those guys on the Emmaus Road, and he says, oh, you guys are so foolish not to believe all that the law and the prophets said about me. They're all pointing to me. That... That sacrifice, that was me. The high priest, as Chris pointed out, that was me. That tabernacle, that temple, that was me. That land, that promised land, that was me. It was all him. It's always been him. It can be nothing other than him. And that's where we have to place our faith. And so important is faith in Christ, and so opposite from the principle of law works, that it's emphasized by Paul that it involves all who believe. Again, look at that verse. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Right? So, writing those words, I think Paul is thinking about the Jewish insistence that they had a better standing with God. They were the chosen people. We have addressed that pretty thoroughly in in chapters 1 through 3. But however, since... Paul has made it clear earlier in chapter 3 that all are under sin and no human being can be justified by keeping the law. The way to have a relationship with God must be the same for all. All are under sin, all break the law, all must be saved the same way. They must be made right with God the same way. And Paul goes on to say exactly that. There is no distinction, he says. All who believe, all who believe, Jew or Gentile, there is no distinction. Now, I want to point something out. I don't know how your version or um, particular Bible would have this, but if you're looking at uh, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, period. Right? Not comma, Period. Now, your Bible might have it differently, but in the Greek text, it's a period. And then there's a short statement, for there is no distinction. Now, that phrase, there is no distinction, can refer to what he's just said. All must believe. There is no distinction. Whether you're a Jew or Gentile, you must believe. Or it goes forward. There is no distinction, for all have sinned. Now, it could be a divine idea that's like, it's both are true. You know, all must believe. There is no distinction. That's the way to be right with God. And it's also true. There is no distinction for all have sinned. 
all are alike in the same position before God. So that brings us to verse 23. There is no distinction for all who believe, just as there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. So this is the human tragedy summed up for us, isn't it? For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And, and you notice how that phrase starts, the three-letter English word F-O-R-4. That is telling you this is an explanation. This is an expansion of there is no distinction for this reason because all have sinned. Every person has missed the mark of God's glorious perfection and so they continually, it's in present tense in the second part of that, continually fall short of his glory. And and the word fall short, it, it means this, to lack something, to be in want or to be destitute of something. And it refers more to a condition than an action. Now, Think with me on this. Fall short. What do we automatically visualize? Someone falling short, right? Falling short. It's an action that we visualize, but it really is describing a condition rather than an action. Everyone's condition is that they are destitute of the perfection of God's glory, the perfection of his person. All are lacking that. Now, this is interesting. The linking of God's glory with the sinfulness of people. It's intriguing. Originally, originally Adam and Eve were created in his image, which meant a number of different things. It did not mean that they got a body like God's because God is spirit. He didn't have a body. So it never, it never meant that. But it did mean many other things like dominion over the earth, having his attributes, etc., etc., In part, it means that they shared in his glorious perfection. They were able to reflect the glory of God perfectly. But sin, sin cut Adam and Eve off from that, and in the same way, it cuts off all of their descendants from doing the same. Though all people are created in the image of God, right? In the image of God, imago Dei, created in the image of God, and we were meant to reflect the glory of God, we are like a cracked mirror. Or maybe a better picture is like, we're like those mirrors when you go to a carnival and you step in front of them, they're all distorted, your face is like four feet long, or your body's really wide. It's like, oh, I'm thankful I'm not that. None of those distorted mirrors actually make you look better, do they? They always make you look weird. But it's like that kind of thing, a cracked mirror or a carnival mirror that distorts the image of the person standing in front of it. So all of Adam's descendants, Adam and Eve and then their descendants, lack the ability to reflect the image of God, the perfect image of God's glory. Wow. Therefore, the meaning of verse 23, that very well memorized and known verse, would be something like this. To come short of reflecting the glory of God is nonconformity to his image. To reflect the glory of God means that we are nonconforming to his image, which we were created to be, and yet it was all lost in 
the fall when sin entered the world. We were no longer able to do that the way it was originally intended. So, what Paul means by saying that there's no distinction is that God, you know, God uh, looks at every person and he, he sees them the same way. It does not mean, by the way, that he doesn't notice, notice differences in people. I want to make sure that that's clear. He certainly knows the difference between a serial killer and a humanitarian who gives a lot of his wealth to all kinds of wonderful charities. He, he sees that difference. He knows the difference uh, or recognizes the difference between the, the thief and the humanitarian, be, between uh, the killer and the one who puts his own life at risk, at danger to rescue others like soldiers oftentimes do or police personnel or firemen. You know, everyone else is running away and they're running to the danger, putting their own life at risk. He sees the difference between those who run away and those that run to. He sees the difference between a faithful spouse and a cheating spouse. He recognizes that. He sees all such differences that are moral and spiritual and cultural and racial and every other kind of difference. But there is no distinction uh, between people in the eyes of God simply means that those type of differences between people that we notice so clearly make absolutely no difference whatsoever when it comes to the matter of being right with God, being declared righteous, because no one can be justified by works of the law, by what they do, how good they are, how religious they are. Let me give an illustrations if I can make it even more clear. It's kind of like when our family lived in the Chicago area for a couple of years while I was going to Bible school. We enjoyed many things that a big city offered. Uh, museums were really cool and some of the parks and, and going to professional uh, ball games, you know, baseball games and that kind of thing. That, that we enjoyed that. But one of the things that we enjoyed was going to what was then called the Sears Tower. It's called something different now. At the time, it was the tallest building in the world. That was back in the beginning of the 80s. Man, I'm old. Hmm. Really? Yeah, I don't feel that old, but I guess I am. So there's something interesting that happens when you go to the, the what was the Sears Tower. We'd rocket ship up on this elevator to the top to uh, the observation room. You get out in the observation room, and if you looked around, you'd see all kinds of people, and you would notice distinctions between them. Height, hair color, uh, different races, clothing styles. You know, someone walked with a limp and others didn't. You, you would notice those. It would be clear in, in your eyes. But if you walked over to the windows of that room, they were on a, on kind of on a slant, you could look down... 110 stories, and you could see people down on the street level. Kind of looked like little ants moving around. You, you, couldn't re you couldn't see any distinctions between people. They're just bodies moving around. Now, I think that's something like what Paul was saying. When we look at people, we see distinctions. That's 
what we see, we see distinction, attitudes and actions and speech and politics and race and gender, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it seems reasonable to us because we've been raised on a law works principle, get you right with God way of thinking. It seems reasonable to us that, you know, a man like Goodly Greg, Goodly Greg, he's sitting in the back row over there. I don't know why Goodly Greg's sitting in the back row, but a man like Goodly Greg would certainly have a better standing before God than evil Eddie. Right? That just would make sense to us because we see those distinctions so clearly. clearly. However, when God looks at people, it's like he's looking down from heaven, from you know, the observation deck, and he's looking down and he doesn't see those distinctions. Now he knows those distinctions. He knows everything about everyone, but he doesn't see that kind of distinction. And the reason he doesn't see that distinction is because all have sinned and fall short. They lack. They are destitute of the glorious perfection of God. And they continue in that state. Therefore, since all of us have missed the mark of God's glorious perfection, that's what it means to sin, to miss the mark, and and we cannot reflect his image, try as we may, by, you know, keeping law, being really religious, being good, faith, faith in Christ Jesus becomes necessary. And it's the only way that we can be declared righteous before God. Wow. Justification is not by works of the law. And justification is only through faith in Jesus Christ. This preacher making a decision about whether to attempt to go into the next one. I'm not going to. We're just... Pick it up in three weeks. Carol and I will be gone for two Sundays. We'll come back and finish these verses. There's two more wonderful things that we're going to see. And we're going to talk about some more big theological words. Redemption. Oh, that's going to be so cool to talk about that. Wonderful what God has done. We're going to talk about propitiation, what that really means, and and how limited uh, some translations have made the understanding of that when we when we get to it. But let me, let me just sum it up this way. We're, we're all in this room, and every one of us will be held accountable before God. We're all going to stand before God. Hebrews 4 puts it this way in verse 13. Everyone will be laid open and bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And for anyone who has not been justified by faith through Jesus Christ, you know, those who thought that they could do it through works of the law, those that thought they could do it by being good or just being better than others, it's going to be a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, to give an account before him. It'll be a fearful thing because the only thing that can come their way is judgment for their sin. And they've all sinned. They continue to fall short of the glory of God. For us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, It's going to be a different picture entirely. We're going to still recognize how much we fell short of the glory of God. But we won't have to give an account for it. Why? Because Jesus already did the accounting for us. Well, I I think we'll have this brief, I, I think we'll have this brief recognition. Oh, man, I can't believe how bad I was even after I was saved. 
thank you, Jesus, that <laughs> I don't have to pay for being so bad after I was saved. Thank you that you bore my sin, past, present, and future. Thank you that I'm welcomed into heaven because of what you did, not what I did. I, I, I put my faith in, in you, Jesus, and that's why I'm welcomed into your presence and into your glory to spend forever with you. What a difference that will be. Sinners are condemned. They will give an accounting. Saints are justified. Jesus bore their sin. There is no accounting. There is only the great hope, the great certainty of being welcomed into his presence. So the question... The, the, the really the, the, the most important question is which camp are you in and you're going to, you're going to pay the penalty according to Paul in first Thessalonians, second Thessalonians one you're going to pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of God and the glory of his might because you did not believe the gospel and by the way if that's you here today you've heard the gospel it's been made known to you. So your accounting will be all the worse because you will recognize, I, I heard it. I should have believed it. And it's too late now. There's no, there's no, it's like, do I get a second chance? No, because it's appointed a man for, to die once. And after that, the judgment. There's no second chance. There's no, I'll get it right the next time. There is no next time. It's life here and then life forever, either in the presence of God or away from his presence. Glory there, torment there. All our sorrow wiped away. All the sorrow you can imagine multiplied a thousand times there. If I only would have believed. It's not my faith. I only would have believed in Jesus. It's the who. So if you are here today and you haven't placed your faith in Christ, I urge you, I urge you to do so before the appointed days of your life end. You say, well, I don't know when that will be. Well, no one does. God does. It could be today. So the best thing to do is get right with God today. Today is the day of salvation, Paul would write. Today is the day of salvation, before it becomes too late. And for all the rest of us who know Jesus, let's just rejoice in what he's done for us today. Let's give him glory. How are we going to do that? Well, with the words of our lips, the meditation of our hearts, and our hands and our feet being put into action, and sharing the gospel with others, and living a Christ qualifying life in front of others so they might see the distinction between one who believes and one who does not so they might be drawn to faith in Christ Lord we are thankful for your word thank you for the beautiful gospel what a wonderful message we've been contemplating this morning we recognize we could never deserve a right relationship with you it's just out the window it can't happen and that, that, that's a problem for a lot of people because they think that's how it works. 
make a deal with God. Make a deal with God. But the sad thing is, behind every one of the doors is the same thing, eternal judgment. But we are thankful that Christ bore our judgment and and the only door that we're going to walk through is the door that enters into heaven. We're going to be welcomed there. So we give you thanks for the gospel. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, your Son and our Savior. We thank you, too, that you take such good care of us on a daily basis. You, you provide what we need for life and godliness. And part of that is food that we eat that sustains us physically. And we're going to enjoy a meal now together and we give you thanks for it, for your good provision for us. And thank you for those people that have put it together. So we're going to enjoy it, and we're going to give you glory in it as we eat. So thank you for all of this in Jesus' great name. Amen.